Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Andre Gonoela, being joined by my co-host Ryan Rosenthal. And today we are so honored, so excited for a conversation with former Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta. As Secretary Panetta served as Secretary of Defense under President Obama between 2011 and 2013, in which he was confirmed in a very rare 100 nothing vote in the U.S. Senate. Before that, he was the director of the CIA between 2009 and 2011, where he oversaw the operation that got bin Laden. And before that, he was the White House chief of staff under President Clinton between 1994 and 1997, the director of, office, of the Office of Management and Budget, and also the chair of the House Budget Committee, as well as serving as a congressman from California between 1977 and 1993. Uh, all of these experiences are going to sort of form the bulk of this conversation. Uh, he has also co-founded the Panetta Institute for Public Policy, uh, wh whose work he is very much involved with right now. And he wrote a great book called Worthy Fights, which is a great biography, uh, covers a lot of stuff, including the Bin Laden raid. I recommend that you all go in and read it. Uh, Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for joining us. We're so honored and humbled that uh, you are participating in this podcast. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you very much for inviting me. I, I look forward to our conversation. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Secretary. I echo Andre's sentiments. And I want to begin today's conversation by talking about the Middle East. Uh, Andre, of course, mentioned that your tenure overlapped with the bin Laden raid in which you were instrumental in its execution. But in recent you know, months and years, we've seen this kind of turn away from the Middle East and this pivot towards Asia. And so I'd love to begin by getting your thoughts about this reorientation of US foreign policy and defense policy. Okay. What's the question? The question is, Mr. Secretary, do you think that the United States can adequately defend itself and manage the, the threats that are in the Middle East from Iran, from we have, you know, Islamic terrorists, um, all the all the and especially, you know, we've seen the Israeli-Palestinian issue, um, all of these conflicts that seem to, you know, still are, are present every day with this pivot to Asia, with this focus on China in particular. Are we ignoring something that was so central to, you know, your experiences in the uh, Obama administration? Yeah, look, I, I, I believe that when it comes to national security, that the United States has to be prepared to deal with all of the threats that are out there that might uh, impact on our national security. And the reality is today, we're living in a world where there are a lot of flashpoints, probably more flashpoints uh, since the end of World War II. Uh, the Middle East uh, is one of those flashpoints, uh, along with, with a number of failed states, uh, whether it's Syria, Yemen, Libya. Uh, these are all concerns about uh, the impact on the stability of the region. Uh, we have terrorism, which still remains a very real threat with ISIS and Al-Qaeda uh, and variations of terrorism that continue to grow in that area. And every time you have a failed state, by the way, it becomes a breeding ground for even greater terrorism. Uh, you have Iran, uh, which remains a, a threat to regional stability in the Middle East. Uh, we have the uh, situation, obviously, between Israel and and the Palestinians, uh, which we saw erupt uh, in, in just the recent past. Uh, and that continues to be a concern about 
that impacts on the stability, again, uh, of the Middle East and of the world. Uh, and then add to that North Korea, uh, another rogue nation which has nuclear weapons and continues to threaten the United States, uh, South Korea and the Pacific region in particular. Uh, add to that uh, dealing with Russia, uh, where we're engaged in what I would call a new chapter of the Cold War with Putin, who's become very aggressive uh, in these last number of years uh, and uh, senses weakness, I think, on the part of the United States. And as a result, has gone into the Ukraine, has gone into the Crimea, has gone into Syria, has gone into Libya, uh, and has obviously attacked the United States uh, in terms of our election institutions as well uh, as uh, cyber attacks that we're now seeing uh, that go after our very infrastructure. And then add to that China, which is a threat, no question that uh, China is uh, an adversary. I think Joe Biden uh, calls it a competitive relationship, whatever you want to define it. Uh, it, it, is a, it is a fact that China is taking steps to try to advance itself in the world as the number one power. Uh, in the world of the 21st century. Uh, and they're doing that uh, by expanding their influence in the South China Sea, militarizing islands there. They've already gone into Hong Kong. Uh, they're threatening Taiwan. Uh, they're obviously uh, have, have taken incredible steps uh, with regards to undermining human rights when it comes to the Uyghurs. Uh, and then at the same time, we have uh, an economic relationship with China both in trade as well as uh, technology. Uh, and yet, it's how we balance that relationship that'll tell us a lot about how we deal with the future. And then add to all of that, the world of cyber, which is the battlefield of the future, which is rapidly becoming the battlefield of the present. Uh, and when you put all of that together, those are all threats to our national security. And the United States has to be prepared very frankly, not to surrender one for another, but to deal with all of it. Certainly, Mr. Secretary, and all of those flashpoints are certainly going to be topics of this conversation ahead. Uh, but one uh, thing in particular I want to sort of ask you about is this withdrawal from Afghanistan. I mean, we're sort of seeing it being undertaken in this bipartisan fashion. President Trump announced that we're going to draw down troops and President Biden is, you know, announced also we're going to be drawing down those troops by September 11th, the 20th anniversary. Uh, your tenure as CIA director obviously saw the death of bin Laden, which was certainly a big blow to Al-Qaeda. But in the years since, we saw the Islamic State rise in Iraq and Syria and throughout the Middle East. Are we making a mistake in withdrawing from Afghanistan, especially considering the strength of the Taliban right now throughout the country? You know, uh, I recognize the frustration uh, with the uh, a long war, a 20-year war that we've conducted in Afghanistan. But the reason we went to war in Afghanistan was because of 9-11. Uh, and the 9-11 attack basically said to the United States, we have got to go after those who attacked us on 9-11 and make sure that it never happens again. And we did that. Uh, we went into Afghanistan. Uh, and uh, Al-Qaeda and bin Laden uh, moved quickly to the tribal areas uh, in Pakistan. Uh, we continue to go after them. Uh, and 
we conducted, as you pointed out, the bin Laden raid, which was successful in getting bin Laden, who was the mastermind behind 9-11. We then kind of focused on trying to get Afghanistan to be able to govern and secure itself. Uh, And uh, we worked to build up their military. We gave them a tremendous amount of aid. We have made progress with regards to Afghanistan, certainly with regards to women and education in Afghanistan, as well as other areas. But the whole purpose was to make sure that Afghanistan would not become a base for terrorism again. And so I I understand the frustration that led to the president's decision, but it's a very risky decision because uh, removing our troops still does not absolve us of the responsibility to make sure that Afghanistan is not taken over by the Taliban and, and does not become again a haven for terrorism. So uh, the president has acknowledged that. Uh, I think the uh, Secretary of State recently has uh, devoted uh, a great deal of foreign aid money to Afghanistan to try to assist them. Uh, the president has talked about, even though we're withdrawing our forces, having the ability to continue to train uh, Afghan forces, having the ability to go after terrorists uh, in what what is called over-the-horizon operations, which means that they would have bases near Afghanistan that would give them that capability. Uh, I, think, I think you can take some important steps here to try to make sure that uh, the Taliban doesn't just overwhelm Afghanistan. I'm worried about it. If you've read headlines in the last few weeks, the Taliban has moved very quickly, particularly in the south and eastern part of Afghanistan. I think some 26 bases have already fallen to the Taliban. So it is a very real threat. I think the United States has a responsibility uh, to deal with that threat and to certainly assist Afghanistan. So while our forces may be removed, as I said, it does not absolve us of the responsibility to make sure that it doesn't become another base for terrorism uh, and for the potential attack on our own country. Thank you for that, Mr. Secretary. I next want to talk about Iran, because this administration has dedicated itself to negotiating, to moving towards a, uh, a second kind of round two of the JCPOA. And there have been criticism you know, from the Republicans about you know, the prospect of working with Iran, potentially let, uh, you know, sanctions relief, economic aid, all these you know, things that are, we haven't seen in the past you know, four years and so. Um, with the an Iran nuclear deal, right? I think one of the biggest criticisms of it was ensuring that there's compliance. And do you believe that the United States and its partners in the P5 can ensure compliance with a country like Iran? Is is the you know IAEA capable enough? Is will Iran be flexible enough to ensure that if a deal were to emerge, that it would be complied with? Well, it is uh, it is without question a very difficult challenge. And I don't think uh, any of us can assume that there's going to be quick success here. Um, I think it's going to take a tremendous amount of work. Uh, I I think the president is trying to do the right thing by trying to bring together 
our allies that worked with us in establishing the nuclear agreement. Uh, whether one agrees or disagrees with that agreement, the reality is that it was working in terms of Iran not enriching nuclear fuel. And Iran was indeed abiding by the inspection uh, requirements uh, to make sure that that was the case. Uh, when Trump withdrew from the Iran agreement, then obviously what happened was Iran began to move forward again with enriching fuel uh, and uh, has continued to do that. So what has to be done here is that we have got to be able to get Iran back to the table and back within the limits that were established by the nuclear agreement. Iran has said they won't do that unless sanctions are lifted. There are now two working groups, one working on the sanction issue, one working on the, uh, the nuclear uh, issue as well, uh, trying to see if there can't be an agreement here that will bring uh, Iran back to the table. Uh, I'm glad they're doing it. I'm glad they're working at it. Uh, it is an important objective, but I also think we shouldn't kid ourselves that it's going to be easy to get Iran to comply. They're, they're in, a, uh, in a year where they're going to have elections very soon. Uh, the likelihood is those elections will produce uh, an even more uh, authoritarian government in Iran than it is and it's pretty authoritarian right now, uh, that could have an impact without question on what happens. Secondly, if, if this is really going to be supported, I think, politically in this country, Iran does have to agree to putting other areas on the table. Uh, its ability to develop missiles should be on the table. Uh, its continuing support for terrorism should be on the table. Uh, those are areas that unfortunately were not included in the first agreement. Uh, and I think uh, President Biden has said that those are areas that ultimately need to be addressed. So there's a lot of challenges here. And I don't think we can assume that we should not be ready for potential conflict in that part of the world. Uh, because it is a very volatile situation. Uh, Iran has continued to conduct some attacks, whether or not that was approved by the government or whether it was the, uh, the work of their military, which sometimes operates on its own agenda. Uh, when they do that, it creates the potential for some kind of misjudgment that can result in conflict. That's a reality. So we have to be prepared. We have to have our military in the, in the Gulf as we do. Uh, we have to continue to monitor the situation. But I think this is one situation where as long as we're prepared for potential conflict, I think we ought to give our diplomats some room to see whether or not they can't arrive at an agreement that can reduce the level of conflict uh, in terms of the relationship.
I now want to move a bit west uh, to your prognosis on NATO. So during the Trump administration, we certainly saw more political pressure, political attacks on NATO uh, that might have undermined the stability of NATO. Uh, we're certainly seeing democratic backsliding with some member states in NATO, for example, Turkey, Hungary, uh, Poland. Is NATO going to be weakened in the future decades? Do we need to be worried about the stability of NATO in the United States? The president's made very clear that we're going to strongly support and strengthen the relationship with NATO. And I think that's the right thing to do. NATO has been one of the most important alliances we've had since the end of World War II. Uh, I think in many ways, NATO may very well be responsible for the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, and so we must continue to support NATO. I regret the fact that President Trump uh, was critical of NATO, kind of undermined our relationship with our allies in NATO. Uh, he was doing it pursuant to this approach of America first, uh, and trying to pull back from our responsibilities in the world. Uh, President Biden was elected with the pledge that he would restore world leadership. Uh, and I believe him uh, when he's committed to uh, trying to do that. Uh, and it begins with trying to restore trust of our allies that the United States is going to be there uh, when it comes to supporting NATO. Uh, and supporting and working with our allies. Uh, yes, NATO has its problems trying to deal with Turkey, trying to deal with other countries that are becoming more autocratic. Uh, but at the same time, I think if the United States and the president make clear that we are there, that we're going to support the alliance, that we're going to do whatever we can to assist our allies in making sure that NATO remains strong, uh, I think we can ultimately restore the trust of that alliance again, and it needs to be restored. Uh, very frankly, the future, I talked about all of those flashpoints. I think the future of the United States as a world leader is going to be not in kind of asserting itself around the world, but building alliances around the world to deal with all of those flashpoints I just talked about. So it means NATO. It means building a strong alliance uh, in the Middle East with moderate Arab countries and Israel. It means building a strong alliance in Asia with uh, Southeast Asian countries, uh, as well as Australia uh, and the Quad. Uh, it means building uh, a strong alliance in Central and Latin America, in Africa. I mean, I, I think the future, if you're looking at how do we try to assure peace and prosperity for the future. It's going to rest in our ability to work with other countries, to develop alliances in which we develop our mutual security for the future. I think that's a, a crucial point. And I, I want to focus in on Russia in particular. You mentioned all the issues that we've had with the Russian Federation of recent history. You know, the mobilization on the Ukraine border, of course, you know, we had the Crimea incident, the annexation. Uh, we've had all this, this cyber um, attacks on our, our elections and also critical infrastructure. And so it, it seems like, you know, Russia is, uh, you know, resurgent or at least at the very least assertive. And so in managing Russia, right, the, the NATO was stood up as a bulwark against the Soviet Union. And now, of course, the issue is, is NATO prepared 
to protect the states on Russia's borders, right? We have the Baltic states. Um, and, and so I, I really think that, you know, the question of the day when, when we talk about Russia is, is the United States, is the United States public prepared to defend countries that are, you know, thousands of miles away on the other side of the world when at, at, at home we're struggling with so many political divides here? And I think, you know, the member states um, a, across Europe are asking themselves this very question and their citizens as well. Yeah, you know, look, uh, Russia is an adversary. Russia's primary goal is to undermine the stability of the United States and to undermine our democracy. Now, that's been their goal for a long time, and it continues, particularly under Putin. Putin, you know, as, as a result of the, the last number of years in the United States, has read weakness on the part of the United States uh, in dealing with Russia. And Putin has taken advantage of that. Uh, as I said, he's taken advantage of it in a number of ways in terms of aggressive actions. Uh, and in particular, he's taken advantage of it in terms of the United States. I mean, this bold cyber attack that was conducted against our election systems beginning in 2016, 2018, 2020, and intelligence tells us they're going to continue to try to undermine our election systems. We've seen uh, the solar winds attack, a very broad cyber attack. We're seeing what these criminals are doing that are hiding out in Russia that went after the colonial pipeline, that went after JBS, uh, the meat uh, packer operation, uh, and, and has continued to go, ransomware attacks are continuing to go after our vital infrastructure. So that is a national security issue. I think it's going to be very important for Joe Biden in this meeting with Putin to make very clear to Putin where the lines are. We haven't done that before, very frankly. But I think he's got to make very clear where the lines are that uh, Russia cannot cross. And one of those lines, very frankly, is in trying to go after any former Soviet republics. Uh, as he did in the Ukraine. Uh, I think we, we have to make very clear that if he tries to do that, NATO uh, will engage. Uh, I think we have to make very clear to Putin that he cannot continue these cyber attacks against the United States. And make no mistake about it, the criminal operations that are hiding out in Russia there is no question in my mind that Russia knows who they are, where they're located, and what the hell they're doing. And so I think it's important for the president to say, uh, Russia, you've got to stop doing this, because if you don't, you're going to pay a price. You're going to pay a price. So what I'm saying is that it is very important for the president to draw some clear lines so that in dealing with Russia, doesn't mean we can't engage on nuclear issues, doesn't mean we can't engage on negotiations on START, doesn't mean we can't work together on trying to control what's happening in Iran. But we have to do it from a position of strength. You can't do that from a position of weakness. And my problem is, in the past, we've tried to deal with Russia from a position of strength. Joe Biden, if he's going to be successful in dealing with Russia, 
He's got to show that there are lines that cannot be crossed. Absolutely. And I mean, I now want to sort of move into a conversation on another adversary. I mean, some commentators have suggested that perhaps Russia, while it is more assertive, is a declining great power. However, we have China, which has become increasingly more assertive, in some senses aggressive, which is certainly a rising power, if not superpower at this point. And uh, I sort of want to go back to your time as Secretary of Defense. I believe in the last month of your tenure, uh, Xi Jinping came to power in China. So I think during the 1980s under Deng Xiaoping, and maybe a bit later, we always talked about China having this hide and bide policy, right? Where China was very much focused on developing itself. I think certainly the time of hide and bide is over now. Uh, China is making you know more assertive inroads in South Asia, in East Asia, and so on. But during your time in the Obama administration, were there any warning signs of perhaps that could predict current Chinese assertion during your time in service? And uh, did we make any mistakes perhaps in dealing with China a decade ago that perhaps, you know, 20, hindsight is 2020 that we could not that we should not have made my sense is that we had a pretty good understanding of uh, what China was about uh, when I was uh, both director of CIA as well as uh, Secretary of Defense uh, and as a matter of fact actually met with uh, President Xi when I was Secretary of Defense uh, and it's it's interesting that in the conversation. I mean, normally, when you're dealing with the Chinese, they work off talking points. Uh, and uh, you, you always can kind of predict what are their talking points. But it was interesting with Xi, there were no talking points. Uh, he raised concerns because at that time, President Obama had made the decision that we were going to pivot our force to the Pacific and actually increase uh, our military presence in the Pacific in order to deal with China, which I thought was the right decision. Uh, and so President Xi was critical of that. Uh, and I said, uh, basically, look, the United States is a Pacific power, just like you're a Pacific power. Uh, and we have issues, frankly, that we're both concerned about, whether it's North Korea, whether it's uh, the problem of uh, humanitarian crises uh, in that part of the world, whether it's the problem of trade, whether it's the problem of open seas, uh, we have issues that, frankly, we can work together on uh, in order to try to provide peace and prosperity to the region. And President Xi said, you're right, we can work together to try to promote peace and prosperity. Uh, and we did that. I mean, I, look, it, it's not that we didn't maintain our, our military power in the Pacific. We did, and we increased it uh, in order to uh, make clear to the Chinese that they can't just go ahead and, and assert their authority. Uh, but at the same time, we conducted dialogue with them in a number of areas. And I think that's, pro that's the kind of approach that you need with China. Again, if you're going to deal with China, you have to deal with them from strength. I think what's happened in the last few years, particularly in the Trump administration, again, is that China read weakness on the part of the United States. 
Trump pulled out of, of the uh, trade agreement uh, with the uh, Southeast Asian countries, which was a real mistake, very frankly. If we had held that agreement together, it would have been a very important trade bulwark that could confront China. But instead, we walked away from that agreement. And China said, if the United States is basically advocating its leadership role, we're going to take advantage of that. And they have. They've gone into countries. They've invested. Their whole Belt and Road Initiative is basically aimed at trying to expand their influence. They have diplomats everywhere. They're building ports. They're providing money. They're being very aggressive. Uh, and I think for that reason, it's important for the United States now to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, there are areas we're concerned about. Uh, the South China Sea should not be militarized and interfere with international law and freedom of the seas. Uh, you've asserted yourself in Hong Kong, but we are not going to allow you to assert yourself in Taiwan. So again, lines have to be drawn. And if lines are drawn in that relationship, I think we can have a dialogue on trade. We can have a dialogue on technology. We can have a dialogue with regards to cyber and what's happening with cyber. Uh, that's, that's the kind of relationship you ultimately want with China, but it has to be from a position of strength. And if we can, if we can make that clear, if the President Biden can make that clear, then I actually think that China itself uh, is going to be more willing to engage in dialogue rather than ignoring uh, international rules. Mr. Secretary, I think the, the natural question that emerges from, from your current comments is, is the United States, you know, given this position of strength, are we strong enough to manage China? Right? Of course, we, you know, the U.S. economy is just, you know, the greatest in the world, but it seems that our, our economic tactics are, not, are ineffective against China. It's, you know, one of the, it's, we have this economic interdependence, and so there's all these issues that occur when we engage in trade wars. But with that, right, when we're looking at the Pacific Ocean in particular, the South China Sea, it seems as if China's military and defense might outcompetes that of the United States. And that is something that generals and admirals have been you know, saying for years, is that we are unprepared for conflict in that region just because of the, the, the issue of like force posture. And so what does the United States need to do to ensure that it operates from a, from a place of strength in order to coerce China into maintaining within the bounds of international norms and international law. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, going back to a question that Andre asked, which was, you know, what, what mistakes were made uh, at, that, at that time, I think the mistakes that were made in the past is we were not really tough enough with China in dealing with trade. Uh, we had a str very strong, huge trade relationship with China. It continued to increase. They continued to uh, not follow the rules of trade. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and Trump basically made it a, a political issue uh, in, in which he went to war with China uh, and engaged in a trade war uh, with China. Uh, we should have been tough a long time ago in terms of, uh, you know, requiring China to abide uh, by their membership uh, in the World Trade Organization, uh, which they have yet to do. Uh, and I, I think that it's very clear that 
China, you know, is a little bit like a bully. If if China thinks that they can take advantage of you, they will. On the other hand, if you stand up to bullies and make clear that that's not the case, uh, then, you, as I said, I think you can engage in some productive dialogue. But you have to do it from this position of strength. I think the United States has to recognize that we are going to have to increase our presence, our military presence in the Pacific. Uh, I regret that uh, the problem I see right now is we're moving uh, our carriers, uh, one of our carriers from the Pacific to uh, deal with the situation, frankly, off Afghanistan. Uh, and I'm afraid that that sends the wrong signal. You want to make sure that we have carriers. I would frankly increase our presence with two carriers. Uh, we have a strong presence in Japan. Uh, we have a military presence, obviously, in South Korea. Uh, we have a military presence in other areas of the Pacific. Uh, I would, I would A, increase our presence there, our military presence. Number two, I would build that alliance that I talked about uh, with the ASEAN countries, uh, sitting down and, you know, the ASEAN meetings were basically kind of touchy-feely me meetings uh, in which everybody kind of got together, but not a hell of a lot happened. I think the ASEAN meetings ought to be about security. Uh, these countries are, have developing economies. They're doing well. There's no reason why they can't develop their own security. And we can help them do that. We can provide, you know, equipment. We can provide training. We can uh, engage in exercises with them to give them a better capability. And mark my words, if we developed a strong ASEAN alliance in China, that would be one of the most effective ways to contain China. Because China right now has a free hand. And they feel they can do whatever they want. And we've got to show that they don't have that ability to kind of march into the South China Sea, grab islands, militarize those islands. Uh, and I think whether it's Vietnam, whether it's other countries in Southeast Asia, we could build a very strong alliance that I think could ultimately make clear to China that they're not going to have a free ride in terms of what they want to accomplish. And if you do that, look, you know, the one thing we're talking about Russia, and I'll say the same thing about China. There's one thing that they hate, and it's because they can't do it, which is to build alliances. Russia cannot stand NATO and alliances that confront Russia. China cannot stand alliances that confront China. But the United States' main weapon, frankly, is the ability to build those alliances. And that, I think, is going to become the most important check on, on both Russia and China. I want to stay on this topic of alliances because in the Indo-Pacific region, we have India, a big rising power, India, which has had some conflict with China last summer in the Ladakh border region. Can India be an ally of the U.S.? Do you think an alliance with the U.S. in the security perspective is possible? And 
obviously, I think when we look at India, we also had to look at the quad, uh, the security framework between the United States, Japan, Australia, and India. Do you think that could be a potential framework for a security alliance that could function in a similar way to what you were just referring to with ASEAN? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I, when I was both director of the CIA and secretary of defense, made a number of trips to uh, India. Uh, and I really found that India and the United States had, had a relationship that is very special in some ways. I mean, we have, we have a lot of people from India now that have come to Silicon Valley, that have come into, uh, you know, uh, the United States. Uh, there are large Indian communities. Uh, and it's created a kind of special bond with India in many ways. Uh, and I found that when I went there that, you know, e whether I was talking intelligence or whether I was talking defense, that we had a very cooperative relationship and could work together uh, in dealing with some common threats. Uh, India is a country that wants to protect its independence, and I understand that. But at the same time, I think India is smart enough to recognize that if it is ever to really break out in terms of its economic strength, that it is going to have to be a country that, that really develops not just its economy, but its security as well. And if, if we can work with India in a real partnership in which we are working together and you know, giving them the assistance they need in exchange for their willingness to work with us in dealing with China and dealing with other threats in that region, I think there's a tremendous potential there for the future. Uh, India is, is one of these countries that, on one hand, uh, has a remarkable opportunity to develop its economic strength. You know, a lot of, of bright people who are educated, who are involved in technology. Uh, you know, we deal, you know, I, I'm on the board of Oracle. We, we deal with India uh, in that capacity. And, uh, you know, we find India to be a real, really good partner uh, in terms of working. But at the same time, you know, in, India in some ways is suffering from the same problem China is, which is that it is not distributing its economic prosperity across the board. And somehow we've got, they've got to break through and make everybody participate in economic opportunity, give everybody a chance to be successful as opposed to having these different systems that trap people. Uh, as we've seen, you know, as a result of COVID-19, we've seen the, the kind of impact that could have. So I'm a believer that India is worth the effort to, to make them an ally in the quad, and more importantly, an ally between India and the United States. I think there's real potential there but we're going to have to pay attention. Uh, too often we take India for granted, and I think we paid a price for that.
Without a doubt. Secretary Panetta, I want to turn next to the emerging threat or actually the present threat of cyber warfare and the use of offensive cyber tactics. Of course, this is a, a state and non-state issue. China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, we have these hacking groups that you mentioned. And so the, the question is, sir, is the current structure of the defense and intelligence communities adequate enough to address this domain of warfare? I mean, do we need a cyber force or does cybercom meet the needs of the future? Ryan, when I was uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, I think it's almost been nine years ago, uh, I gave a speech on the Intepred carrier in uh, New York Harbor, in which uh, I devoted the speech to the threat from a cyber attack. Uh, and mentioned the fact that uh, we had just found out that Iran had deployed something called the Shamoon virus uh, in, in, at Aramco Oil in Saudi Arabia and literally destroyed 30,000 computers. And what I said in that speech is that if you get that kind of sophisticated virus and an adversary decides to use that against the United States, you can literally cripple our electric grid system, our transportation systems, our financial systems, our chemical systems, our water systems. You can, the words I used is you can create a cyber Pearl Harbor. Now, while that kind of massive attack hasn't happened, we are today seeing the consequences of what is happening with the cyber attacks and ransomware attacks that are going after our vital infrastructure. I mean, the Colonial Pipeline, major pipeline delivering fuel to the East Coast was shut down. We had panic buying, we had gas stations closing. Uh, we saw you know, meat suppliers being impacted. We see transportation systems, the New York subway and others impacted by this. This is a national security threat. This is just a bunch of criminal organizations, you know, making money. This is a national security threat for the United States. And I think we've got to treat it that way. And unfortunately, you know, even though we've, we've talked about the importance of cyber, we built the cyber command, we've taken other steps to try to uh, move cyber together. I have to tell you, it's very much a hit and miss operation. Everybody's operating in their own silos. Government agencies are operating in their own silos. Departments are operating in their own silos. The private sector is operating in its own silo. And what is needed now, uh, there are several key things. Number one, we need a national cyber strategy that brings together our defense capabilities and our offensive capabilities in the use of cyber but i i really think we've got to we've got to really have a national strategy i mean it's a little bit like dealing with covid-19 i mean you know the problem with covid-19 is we had 50 states doing their own thing and it created a lot of help well in many ways that's what's happening with cyber you got everybody kind of doing their own thing. Uh, and, and they're paying off ransoms, by the way. I mean, Colonial Pipeline 
paid a ransom. And if there's anything the FBI understands better than anything is if you pay off somebody uh, a ransom, all you're doing is sending a message to other criminal organizations, have at it. There's money to be made. So we need a national cyber strategy. Number two, we need to have a partnership between the public and private sector that are working together right now, frankly, well, you heard yesterday, I think the administration says, oh, businesses better develop their own defenses here. Well, excuse me, this is a national security issue. It is government and businesses working together to confront this threat that we're dealing with. That partnership needs to come together. And lastly, we have got to stay on the cutting edge of this technology. This technology is developing rapidly. It's going to continue to develop rapidly. We need to be ahead of that technology. And we need to have bright, the brightest and the best people possible dealing with this whole area of cyber. We've got to recruit people to be part of a very strong team that can really bring together that strategy I talked about in order to make sure that this country is working together to protect our national security. This is a fundamental national security issue. And unfortunately, right now, that is not the way it's being addressed. You bring up so many key points with that statement. And I mean, you mentioned COVID-19 and even going back to 9-11, I think both of those two instances were certainly failures of imagination within the national security context. And then certainly, I mean, we want to avoid a failure of imagination with the cyber domain. And you talk about, you know, making sure we're partnering with the private sector, making sure we're sort of knowing what's going on and that we also need to recruit, you know, the greatest minds. And I mean, I mean, in my view, the U.S. military, of course, is the most advanced, uh, the greatest military on the planet. But do we need to rethink what our idea of the U.S. soldier is and the culture around cyber as a military domain? I mean, you know, we see so many software engineers from all of these high level universities who are being recruited by Facebook, by Apple, by Microsoft, and they're all going to the to the fun looking places, right? Like places that are sort of chill and all of that. And they might not know that the US military, that the US you know, intelligence community, that the defense sector has these opportunities. And they might also not be as motivated to pursue that because it is such a rigid structure. How do we deal with that? Do we actually need to rethink what the US soldier is and redefine it? Well, I, I, I think we have to be a lot more flexible than we are now. Uh, and a lot more adaptable in terms of the threats that are out there. Uh, you know, the, the whole the whole defense strategy for a long time has rested on weapon systems. You build bigger carriers, you build, build bigger bombers, you build bigger uh, fighter planes, you, you build uh, bigger tanks. I mean, that you know, the idea of kind of developing those kinds of weapon systems is what we've been tied to for a long time. But what's happening before our eyes is that the rest of the world is moving into the cyber battlefield. And, you know, we're seeing it from what's happened recently. But the reality is Russia has used what I would call hybrid warfare 
to basically go into the Ukraine using cyber, uh, using forces uh, that are put on the ground uh, that aren't necessarily identified, uh, using other ways to try to undermine stability. I mean, the whole purpose of hybrid war is to create instability. I mean, what they did with our election systems is a great example of how you can create instability in the most powerful democracy on earth. I mean, we were, we were going crazy. We were, we were attacking each other as to what the hell was going on uh, as a result of these cyber attacks on our election system. And that was exactly what the Russians wanted, was to have United parties going after each other, Republicans, Democrats going after each other, the country going after each other. And that, you know, that that is, that's the kind of warfare we're going to have to deal with in the future. We've got artificial intelligence developing. I mean, my God, you know, the capability of artificial intelligence to be able to gather all of this data, to be able to determine what happens on the battlefield, the use of drones, the use of space, I mean, all of this is the kind of development that we United States has to be ahead of. So the answer to your question is that the Defense Department has to be agile enough. Yeah, you might you might face a conventional war. Yes, you might have to go after terrorists with, with counterterrorism capability. But at the same time, you might have to face a country that's coming after us using cyber weapons. I mean, after all, you don't have to, you, if you're using cyber and you're using, you know, these sophisticated viruses, you don't need to deploy bombers. You don't need to deploy fighter planes. You don't need to put the boots on the ground. You, just, you sit at a computer and you can deploy a sophisticated virus that can virtually cripple a country. And that's the reality. That's the world we live in. And so we damn well have to be prepared to deal with, with those threats, all of those threats. Yes, you know, we're going to have to maintain some weapon systems. I understand that. But at the same time, we better damn well be dealing with the new technologies that are coming into the warfare regime. Uh, and those technologies are being developed in Russia, in China, and elsewhere. So we've got to be able to deal with that as well. So it does mean that we're, you know, we're probably going to have to take a serious look at our defense strategies for the future. Because, you know, when, when I was secretary, we had one of the things Defense Department does pretty well is develop defense plans. What could happen, you know, in, uh, in Iran? What could happen in North Korea? What could happen in Russia, what can happen in China? Well, I think we're going to have to develop some plans about what can happen if we face a, a wave of cyber attacks that impacts on our national security. How are we going to deal with that? How are we going to confront that? Uh, how, how are we going to deal with the ability to get, you know, space weapons out there that can knock down our satellites and virtually cripple our ability to communicate. How are we going to deal with that? 
I mean, th those are the kinds of questions that need to be asked. And frankly, we, we've got to be prepared to think all of this through if we're going to protect the United States of America in the future. Mr. Secretary, I'm going to attempt to squeeze in one final question about the defense budget, given, you know, you were Secretary of Defense and Chair of the House Budget Committee. And so, sir, the Biden administration is seeking to increase the defense budget by $10 billion. We're spending a lot of money on the budget. We're also spending a lot of money on domestic issues as well. And so do you think at, for the first part of the question, is it adequate, $10 billion added, or should we be cutting spending like so many in the Democratic Party are seeking to do? Well, uh, my friends... <laughs> Let me raise an issue that not a hell of a lot of people are paying attention to. Uh, and that's going to impact on your generation, which is a $28 trillion debt uh, and a deficit right now that is running $4.5 trillion. When I was chair of the budget committee, we were worried about $300, $400, $500 billion deficits. We now have $4.5 trillion deficits that are continuing. To increase. So what I believe needs to be done, and it's a process that frankly has is broken. It's been broken for the last 10 years. Uh, we've got to get back to some degree of budget discipline. We, we've got to set a path for this country that recognizes that within a five or 10 year span, we can't allow the debt to grow, right now it, it's growing so that it will be 150% of GDP. It'll represent a relationship where debt will be 150% bigger than GDP in this country. I mean, it's gonna undermine our, our economy for the future. So how can we try to develop a path here that gets us back to a better relationship between debt uh, and, uh, and spending uh, at the federal level? So what I'm calling for is basically, you know, a serious budget that sets that direction. And if we set that direction, very frankly, we're going to have to be disciplined, uh, not just on defense spending, we're going to have to be disciplined on discretionary spending as well. Uh, and we're going to have to be disciplined on entitlement spending. And very frankly, we're going to have to probably raise revenues. All of that needs to be part of that package. And if you can do it in that context, look, you know, as Secretary of Defense, there are areas where savings can be achieved in defense. We can achieve savings in procurement. We can achieve, we can get savings in duplication in the Defense Department. Uh, we can eliminate some, some of the number of bases that we have around the, the whole world, as well as in this country. There are bases that we can reduce. So yeah, there are savings that can be achieved in defense, but we're living at a time now where we're doing everything and basically borrowing the money to get it done. And I guess what I'm saying to both of you is that if we really want to get this in control, we have got to develop a comprehensive budget that looks at every area, that finds savings in every area, and that sets a path of discipline for the future that is going to ensure that when when you're out there with whatever careers you decide on, you're going to have a country that is in a much better fiscal position in order to handle economic growth. That 
that's what really needs to be done. On that note, the debt and the deficit still exist, folks. We all got to remember that. But on that note, Secretary Panetta, thank you so much for joining us for this last hour. We are so honored and delighted that you spent your uh, Thursday evening, I guess, in California uh, with us. Uh, folks, uh, Worthy Fights, his great autobiography is out on Amazon and like all these other bookstores. It's been a couple of years now since the publication, but it's a great book. Please read it. Secretary Panetta, thank you so much. Thank you both. This has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, it's given me a chance to, uh, you know, to be able to uh, touch uh, a number of those issues that not only did I deal with them when I was in government, but I continue to worry about in terms of uh, our future. So thank you for that opportunity. <laughs>